Well, stop being such a child. That's a great way to offend someone, isn't it? Stop being such a child, especially if you're talking to an adult or a teenager. <laughs> stop being such a child. To be accused of childishness, well, that's just embarrassing. It's humiliating. And uh, that really makes our passage today a bit unusual. Because today we look at a bit of this bit of the Bible, we're actually being asked to decide what sort of children we are or what sort of children we want to be. And I need to tell you, it's a massive question with literally eternal consequences. We're continuing, as AB said, to look at, our, look at Jesus, the King of the Kingdom of Heaven, and that's the question that King Jesus puts to each one of us today. What sort of children are you? What sort of children do you want to be? And our passage really is a passage of contrast this morning, and the question is one of contrast. We have a choice of only two types of children, children of judgment or children of rest. What sort of children are you? What sort of children do you want to be? And as we'll see, it all swings on your response to Jesus. So make sure you've got your Bible open at Matthew chapter 11. There's an outline of the talk on the inside of the bulletin. And I'm going to uh, pray and ask God uh, to help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, really it's a great privilege to uh, come before you again this morning on this day and have you address us in your word, a word of your Son that comes to us by your Spirit. And uh, Father, we want to ask that you might be merciful to us this morning and help us to understand what you say. And more than that, Father, to actually respond rightly to it. Help us to be able to concentrate on what you say, Father, and give us a humility. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you were here last time, uh, last week, you would have noticed that we noticed together that Jesus was a really surprising king. Especially, remember, he was surprising to John the Baptist, who... John, who was a forerunner of Jesus, and John expected judgment with the coming of Jesus, was, but was surprised by the mercy of Jesus. And again, in our passage this morning, both judgment and mercy are on view. But just in case from last time, just in case from last time you thought that Jesus was all mercy and no judgment, well, I reckon that error is very quickly exposed in our verses this morning. In verse 16... Jesus looks at his generation, the people of his generation. He looks at them and he makes an assessment. And his assessment of his generation is not at all favorable. Verse 16, he says, To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces calling out to others. We played the flute for you, you didn't dance. We sang a dirge for you, you didn't mourn. Jesus compares his generation with children, but not good children. These are children who complain. These are children who whinge. These are children who are not satisfied. These are moaning children. These are children who are missing what is happening right in front of them. Because right in front of them, the greatest of the prophets, John the Baptist, the greatest of the prophets had been ministering in front of them, but they complained. They weren't satisfied. They missed it completely. Right in front of them, Jesus, the Christ, the King, had been ministering. But they complained. They were not satisfied. 
They missed it completely. Listen to how Jesus says it in verse 18. He says, For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came. It's the way Jesus talks of himself. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It was a disgrace that Israel, the chosen people of the Lord, the ones who had the promises of God in their scriptures, that they recognized neither the greatest of the prophets nor even the Christ who was promised and predicted by the prophets. It was a disgraceful tragedy. Because you see, under Jesus' ministry, like we thought about last time, and just as was promised in the scriptures, the blind received sight under Jesus' ministry, the lame walked, The lepers were cured, the deaf heard, the mute spoke, the dead were raised, good news was preached to the poor, and yet the generation of Jesus missed it. Even though they were under the very curse of God for their disobedience in the Old Testament, even though they were longing for redemption and freedom, they rejected both the greatest of the prophets and even the Christ himself. They wrote them off, a demon, a glutton, a drunkard. To steal a line from John's gospel, as he describes Jesus, he wrote this, talking of Jesus, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. That's what Jesus is observing right here. He was a surprising Christ Jesus, a surprising king. He didn't fit their expectations. He would not dance to their tune. And so they rejected him. And so... Jesus rejects them. Jesus denounces them as foolish children. Jesus denounces them as children of judgment. And his words are stinging indeed. Verse 20, can you see it with me? Verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. And as you read on, you can see that he denounces the city of Chorazin in verse 21, the city of Bethsaida in verse 21 again, and then in verse 23 a bit later, he denounces the city of Capernaum. Just to remind us that these are real places in real times, there's a map (coughs) and uh, there's some arrows up there. That's the Sea of Galilee in the middle. I've sort of got an arrow, unfortunately, right in the middle of it, but there's Chorazin and Bethsaida and uh, Capernaum right there all along the coast, really, of the Sea of Galilee. Look at what he says in passing judgment on these cities. Can you see it in verse 21? He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon were cities just to the north on the coast of the Mediterranean. The map I found Didn't go north enough for Sidon, but that top arrow is where Sidon would be. You can imagine it. The key thing is, though, Tyre and Sidon, they were pagan cities. They were Gentile cities. They were cities who pop up lots of times in the Old Testament prophets. And pretty much every time they pop up in an Old Testament prophet, they are are singled out for judgment. They were cities who were thoroughly deserving of God's judgment because of the way they treated God and because of the way they treated God's people. There are not many kind words about Tyre and Sidon to be found in the Bible. They were godless cities. They were evil cities. 
And for the Jews of Jesus' day, okay, the cities of Tyre and Sidon would have been hated cities. They would have been held in contempt. Look again at what Jesus says in verse 21. Can you see it? Verse 21, he says, As evil as Tyre and Sidon were, if the miracles of Jesus had been performed there, they would have repented. They would have recognized the error of their thinking and their doing. They would have recognized Jesus' authority and they would have fallen in line to serve him. Not the people of Chorazin. Not the people of Bethsaida. No, they refused to recognize Jesus as their Christ. They refused to give him their loyalty. They refused to repent and so Jesus denounces them. Verse 22, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Friends, I've got to tell you, if you haven't figured it out yourself, these are very serious, somber, awful words. This is not gentle Jesus, meek and mild speaking here, is it? This is not Jesus, the cute little baby in the manger on the front of our Christmas cards. This is not Jesus with the permed hair and the smiling children, the little lambs on, on his lap. This is Jesus with teeth. This is Jesus with authority to judge. This is the real Jesus. This is Jesus who holds the keys of heaven and hell in his hands. This is the Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the King of the kingdom of heaven. And the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida, they had treated Christ Jesus with contempt. And he only has contempt for them. They wanted him to dance to their tune, but they had completely misunderstood who they were dealing with. And he denounces them. I tell you, it'll be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon, verse 22, on the day of judgment than for you. Folks, I've got to tell you, you can look it up for yourself, but there is some terrible punishment and judgment promised to fall on Tyre and Sidon in the Old Testament. But Jesus says for these people, in his generation, it'll be even worse because they rejected him, the king. And staggeringly, the same is true for Capernaum. I say staggering because I think the comparison becomes even more striking to us. Can you see it there in verse 23? Jesus, in verse 23, compares Capernaum, a bustling seaside city in Jesus' day. He compares it with the Old Testament city of Sodom, a city that is famous even today among non-Bible readers, a city that is renowned for its evil a city that is renowned for the awful judgment that fell upon it. And you can read it for yourself back in Genesis chapter 18 and 19. It's a terrible account. It is a city of gross and disgusting immorality. It was a city that was destroyed by the Lord in righteous judgment in the most terrible of manners, burning sulfur raining down from heaven from the hand of the Lord, overthrowing, destroying everything and everyone. You can see, though, in our passage, according to Jesus, as he denounces the city of Capernaum, a city that he would have spent much time in. See what he says there in verse 23? If the miracles that were performed in you, Capernaum, if they'd been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. That is a breathtaking statement. It will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment 
than for you, Capernaum. Sodom, renowned for its evil, will have it easier on the day of final judgment, if that's probably not the right word to use, but you know what I mean, than the city of Capernaum. How could that be? It's because Capernaum, the people of Capernaum, who had the promises of the Christ in their scriptures, who had seen the Christ in their very midst, who had seen the signs of the Christ in his miracles, but they had not repented. They hadn't recognized him as king. They had not determined to change the direction of their life so as to serve and follow him. They had not given him their life's loyalty. They had not repented. And so because of that terrible decision, Jesus says it will be worse for them on judgment day than even the evil city of Sodom. Friends, we need to heed Jesus' words here with the utmost seriousness. How we respond to what we know of Jesus will determine our fate on the great day of judgment that is fast approaching. From whom much has been given, much will be expected. And for the Jewish people of Jesus' day, much had been given in the scriptures, in the presence of Jesus, in his signs, his miracles. They were without excuse. Much was expected of them and they failed. They failed to repent. And look, even though we are not back there and then, even though we are not of the generation of Jesus, even though I'm thinking the vast majority of us are not Jewish, even though we haven't had Jesus physically in our presence in our city, can I say that we are in a far more privileged position than even those people of Chorazin? Even those people of Bethsaida and Capernaum, we are in a far more privileged position than them. Like we thought about last time, in terms of salvation history, we've seen how the story ends. We have the resurrection of Christ before us. We have the completed scriptures before us. Here we are today having it taught to us. We are without excuse. Absolutely without excuse. Much has been given to us, you see, and much will be expected. And so we must not fail. We must not fail to repent. We must not fail to bow down before the authority and the majesty of Christ Jesus. We must not fail to hand to him our deepest, most abiding loyalty. We must not fail to serve him absolutely as our king or else his terrible judgment awaits. Now I need to take us on a slight sidetrack here, any slights, because it may be that you're wondering about those people in other places and other times who've not had the privilege of hearing and reading what, we've, what we have or seeing and hearing what the people of Capernaum saw and heard. And maybe you're wondering, or maybe they are with, with excuse. It's true, isn't it, from what Jesus says here, that ju- the judgment of Jesus takes into account opportunity. Jesus is a just judge. He'll not find anyone guilty of not knowing something that they could not possibly have known. That's true. But we do need to bear in mind as we think about this just quickly, the words of the Apostle Paul in another place in the, in the Bible, in Romans chapter 1. I'll just quickly show it to you. He wrote this. He said, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men and women who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. 
For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. See, folks, the basic problem of people facing the judgment of God is never a lack of information about God. The problem is what people do with that information. And by instinct, we suppress the truth about God. We fail to honour God rightly. We instinctively honour other things and other people in place of God. And it's true that Jesus will not condemn anyone for not knowing something they could not possibly have known. Paul's point here in this passage is that the essential information about God is available to all in the, in the evidence even of creation. People are without excuse. On the, on the final judgment day, but I didn't know. That won't cut it. However, you know, end of sidetrack, those sort of theoretical, philosophical questions, they're not the main point of the passage, are they? The main point here is that the people of Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, they did know. They are so much without excuse that for them, the failure to respond rightly to Jesus the Christ, the failure to repent, brings terrible judgment and condemnation upon them. And folks, can I say it again? The same is even more true for us in this room today. Already, even being here this morning and listening, already much has been given to you and so much is required. It is impossible to over-exaggerate the importance of responding rightly to Jesus the Christ. It is impossible to over-exaggerate the importance of repentance before him and his authority. Even right now, today. To be a child of judgment is a terrifying, an eternally terrifying thing to be and you do not want it to be you. And it doesn't have to be you. It doesn't have to be you. That's the wonderful thing about this passage. For there is another group of children described by Jesus in this passage. Not children of judgment, but children of rest. And if you suspect that maybe right now at this moment you might be a child of judgment, you need to listen especially carefully, don't you? Because Jesus is about to tell us about how to become a child of rest. It's not insignificant that immediately after speaking some of his most awful words... Jesus speaks some of his most gentle and comforting and gracious words. And you know what? He invites even me and even you to become children of rest. Point two on our outline and verse 25. He says, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. A couple of quick questions and answers about that verse. Ready? It says, what are these things? What are the these things that Jesus is talking about? Well, it's a context thing, isn't it? He's talking about the significance of his miracles. He's talking about the significance of his identity, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the King. That's the these things. Who are, who are these things hidden from? Well, we can read it there in the verse. The, the wise and the learned. If you like, the so-called wise and the learned, those who know it all, you know, the, the proud, the arrogant, the self-sufficient, the self-saved religious people. People like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, but not just them. The proud, the arrogant, the self-sufficient, the self-saving people of our own day as well. 
The truth about Jesus is hidden from them. Hidden by who? Well, you read the verse. The Father of Jesus, the Lord of heaven and earth. He hides these things from the so-called wise and learned who in their hardness of heart choose not to need them anyway. But here's the great thing, you ready? The Father doesn't just hide these things. He reveals them too. That's great. He reveals them to who? To little children. Now, not literally little children only, although he certainly does that too. It's fantastic. We can see that among our own children here in early church. But Jesus is thinking even of little children like the disciple Peter. In fact, a few chapters later, if you're a quick turner, you can turn with me if you like. In chapter 16 of Matthew, there's a famous conversation between Peter and Jesus. Jesus is asking the disciples, who, who do people say I am? And there's a variety of answers. But then Jesus turns to Peter and in verse 15 of chapter 16. Jesus says this, what about you, Peter? Who do you say I am? In verse 16, we read, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We're thinking, good answer, Peter. But listen to what Jesus says to Peter next in verse 17. Can you see it if you're looking? Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. It's exactly what Jesus is praising his Father for in chapter 11, our passage this morning. That his Father reveals his truth, uh, the truth about who Jesus is, to little children. You might think, hey, hang on, Peter's not a little child, is he? He's a grown-up. He's an adult. But he is a little child in a really important sense. Because little children are dependent. Little children are humble. They're teachable. They're lowly. They are the very opposite to those who preen themselves, you know, and boast about what they know. They are the very opposite of the so-called wise and learned. And so again, a little later again in this Gospel of Matthew, we can see it. If you're into turning, chapter 18 now, Matthew chapter 18, where we, we look at a situation where Jesus is with his disciples and he calls a little child and has the little child stand among Jesus and his disciples. Jesus puts his hands on him. You know what Jesus says, verse 3 of chapter 18, he says to them, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You get it? The truth about Jesus is revealed by the Father to those who know how desperately they need to know it. To those he is pleased to reveal it to, those who are humble, dependent, broken, needy. And I've got to tell you, when... The Father reveals this truth about Jesus to someone. Something very profound and wonderful is happening. Jump back with me to chapter 11. Check out verse 27 with me. Chapter 11, verse 27, we read this. Jesus says, All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. There's a whole lot of revealing going on. The Father reveals the Son to little children. The Son reveals his Father to them. And so they come to God. Father, Son and Spirit. 
They are welcomed to God. They enjoy communion with God. It is a wonderful, profound, fantastic mystery. And I want you just for a moment to compare the joy, the eternal joy of being in communion with God to the eternal terror of being judged by God. And of course there is no comparison, is it? And so how wonderful is it, how fantastic is it that the Father sent the Son to come among us to save his people from their sins, to save them from judgment and to bring them into the rest, into the peace of communion with God, relationship with God that lasts forever. And so Jesus, the King, calls people to no longer be children of judgment, but to become children of rest. And it's a fantastic call. It's there in verse 28. He says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Friends, I need to tell you that if you're here this morning and you are weary and burdened, then Jesus the King calls you to come to him. If you're weary of this world, struggles of this world, Jesus the King calls you to come to him. If you're burdened, burdened by your sin and your guilt, you come to Jesus. He will give you rest. The people of Jesus' day were burdened with the fact they were still in exile from God. And Jesus offers them rest and comfort. The people of Jesus' day were burdened with the religious, hypocritical demands of their leaders. They were trying to be religious enough for the kingdom of God. And King Jesus offers another way, a better way. But it's not just back there and then, it's here and now. It's a call that comes to us even today. To the weary and the burdened, to those who know that they need profound spiritual help, to those who know that they cannot make it on their own, to those who know that they are in desperate trouble with God and they cannot do anything about it themselves, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. And what rest it is, it's the rest of relationship with God, communion with with God. It's the rest of forgiveness and freedom from sin. It's a rest that begins now and never ends into all of eternity. It's a rest that is entered through submitting to Jesus as your king. See verse 29, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke was the piece of wood put on the shoulder of animals so they could pull heavy loads. And the yoke that Jesus speaks of here is a symbol of becoming his servant. His servant. For he's the king. Don't make that mistake. It is the Christ who calls you. And so you come in humility and repentance. You come to him as the king. The king of all kings. But he is a king, of course, that you can trust. He says it, he is gentle and humble in heart. He promises rest for your souls. And can I suggest there could be no greater promise that you could hear than rest for your souls. It's the very opposite of the judgment that's promised in those earlier verses. There is no rest in judgment, there is only torment. 
But Jesus promises rest for your soul when you come to him. For you know what? Such was the gentleness of Jesus. Such was the humility of Jesus. That not so very long after making this call and speaking this promise, Jesus paved the way for sinners to come to him, to find rest in him. He paved the way for that by dying in their place on the cross. His yoke is easy. His burden is light because in following Jesus the Christ, you follow the king who came to bring you true life to the full. You follow the king who gave up his life for you so that you might enjoy that life. You follow the king who faced judgment for you so that you might escape facing it yourself. You follow the king who was condemned for you so that you might be free of guilt. It all happened as Jesus the Christ died and was resurrected on behalf of his people so that his people might become children of rest. So friends, I need to to ask you this morning, have you heard the call of King Jesus? Not asking whether you're in church, not asking whether you've been part of early church for all of your life even, not asking whether you're Presbyterian, I'm asking, have you heard the call of the king? And more importantly, have you responded to it? In humility and repentance, have you put on his yoke, which is easy and light? Have you given him the loyalty, the abiding loyalty of your life? There's no greater question I could ask you that anyone could ask you, you know. There's no greater call that you'll ever hear. We need to stop being children. We need to stop being children of judgment. And we need to start being children of rest. The wonderful old hymn expressed it like this. Just as I am, without one plea, but that you died to set me free. And at your bidding, come to me, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Have you came? love to talk to you some more about it. I'm sure A.B. would too if you'd like. Such an important call. Such a wonderful rest. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you For your Christ, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for sending him. Thank you that he was willing to come. And thank you, Father, that he came to save sinners like us from the judgment that we deserve. Father, help us to wrestle seriously and somberly with the reality, the truth of Judgment Day. Father, really bring us to our knees in humility and help us to recognize, Father, that we have no plea before you. Fill our hearts with wonder, Father, at this call of Jesus, that he would call people to himself and promise rest. Father, many of us have come 
and we're filled with thanksgiving and joy. Even those of us who have come, Father, perhaps we're thinking even now that our service of King Jesus is less than it ought to be. And we're sorry for that. Father, there might be those of us here this morning who are yet quite to come. Father, I pray that you'd reveal the truth of Jesus to them. Father, we thank you for King Jesus and the rest that is in him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.